Hi, my name is Helgi Olafsson. I have an autoimmune arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis, but I happen to be an ultra runner. Just completed the triple crown of 200s. There's so much more, but I'm happy to share it with you here on the Training for Ultra podcast with Rob Steger. So welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. Great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey everyone, it's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? I decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. 100 miles is not that far. Welcome to episode 194 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. We're talking to Helgi Olafsson. Super interesting story, super inspiring, and I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Helgi, thank you for joining me. It's long overdue. Um, We've definitely seen each other out on the trails. I just saw you just a few weeks ago at Moab 240. And just excited to share some of your story with the listeners. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've, I've uh, been a fly on the wall and kind of watched the podcast grow over the years. Uh, you and I kind of got into the 200 scene around the same time. And uh, I'm really happy that there's a resource for um, other ultra runners and potential ultra runners to get out there and you know, see what others are doing. And I think your podcast is is very um, much along those lines to help those people come to fruition. Yeah. I mean, goal is always to inspire. And so I think it's, people are shocked because I'll talk to winners of races, very last finishers of races, you know, people that haven't even done an ultra yet, some that have done a hundred, like, you know, it's all over the place. Inspiration, I, I truly believe, comes from all over and you're one of those stories i i didn't know the full extent of uh you you're running your purpose like i knew you're out there i knew you could just crush really long races and you've done a lot of those 200 milers that i want to hear more about but just to start things off let's let's hear more about why you're running some of your the background on like the medical condition that you live with every day and, and more about your why. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'd like to start off by saying I'm pretty grateful to have such a powerful why. Um, I know that, uh, I have, uh, friends who are out there and sometimes it's hard to continue on when you want to quit if you don't have a really strong why. Um, so I'm happy that I have that. And it's odd that I say that because, you know, I have an autoimmune arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis that essentially is, um, 
my body's response to inflammation is adding bone to those areas and fusing together. So you could imagine that, uh, you know, it can get pretty bad. Um, I've, I've been lucky and was diagnosed at the age of 19. So I'm 38 now. So basically half of my life I've been diagnosed, though it's um, a genetic disease. So I've had it my entire life, essentially. But um, it's just really important for me to uh, not let the disease win. And it's really become a manageable condition when I look at it in that regard. Um, I feel for a lot of others who have my disease, uh, mostly people who are not active and lead a sedentary lifestyle because um, the, the disease will, you know, notice that the human is not battling and it will take over and therefore makes it so that, you know, that human can't battle. And that's that's the catch 22 of this thing. You really got to take it by the horns. So I've been able to you know, essentially do that and have the the support of the uh, spondylitis and arthritis communities uh, for the past about 10 years since I got into endurance sports. Uh, I've been doing some advocacy work for different organizations uh, regarding the the races that I do and the communities that are in those areas, just to be able to bring people together with the common goal of using exercise and movement as, a, as medicine. I, I love it. I mean, I knew none of this, like, and that's, that's, what's truly fascinating is you see each one of these runners at hundred milers at basically any ultra. And there's such a, a story behind each one. And many of those are just kind of mind blowing and hard to comprehend. So, I mean, take me back to when you're 19 and, and you get this, you know, this kind of earth shattering, um, finding from the doctor and, and like, what's your process of going through, like being diagnosed to then becoming a, an ultra runner? I know it wasn't quick, yeah. but no, no, definitely not. And actually it took me a bit to, to, to realize what I needed to do. But as far as the diagnosis goes, yeah, I was 19 um, I had kind of dropped out of college. Uh, it just wasn't for me. Uh, I, I ended up working in restaurants because that's how I could make some money. And then I started to be good at it. So I, I eventually just kept going on that path. And now, uh, you know, at 38, I'm a super yacht chef of 10 years. I've worked in some of the best restaurants in the country and it's just, it's been great to be able to take something that's not necessarily like a sought after career um, as far as the, the money that you can make and, and being able to um, get to a, you know, a higher echelon and be comfortable and be able to um, support my adventures. But uh, I digress. Uh, as far as the diagnosis goes, uh, I was, I lived back with my mom for a little bit at 19, and this was in Boca Raton, Florida. And I essentially couldn't get up out of bed one morning. It was just, I was rolling around and the, it felt like my, my spine was, you know, rubbing against my coccyx and just any position was just a heartbreaking, heart wrenching pain. It was so bad. And so my mom got really worried and we went to get diagnosed got misdiagnosed with sciatica by a doctor and given a whole bunch of painkillers. 
So that was about six months uh, of, of having that uh, regimen and not, it wasn't working. So my mom, you know, she dug deeper and we went to a rheumatologist in Delray Beach, Florida, and his name's Dr. Goodman. He's still my doctor to this day, um, but he suggested that we test for ankylosing spondylitis. And so I got some blood tests. Uh, I tested positive for one of the genes that if you have this gene, you're 90% likely to have the disease. And then uh, got, you know, x-rays and MRIs to confirm that there was fusion in my uh, SI joints, which are the sacroiliac joints, the kind of the hip joints. Um, so, so yeah, then, uh, you know, I, I realized that uh, I had to do something about it. And he gave me some uh, medications that are essentially a steroid. It's like a TNF blocker that tricks my body into not attacking that area of inflammation. Um, but obviously there's side effects and that can reduce my immune, um, you know, defense system. So, yeah, uh, that was pretty much the, the, the path to diagnosis. And one of the things that stuck with me that Dr. Goodman said when I was essentially crying in front of him was, uh, Hey, I've got this guy who's another patient and he's a surfer and uh, he is crushing it out there and still being able to compete and da-da-da-da-da. I don't remember what his name was, but it just gave me like a beacon of hope that, you know, it, it was possible to be able to live a normal life still. Now, when you get the diagnosis, is there like a timetable? Is the doctor like, you know, X amount of people with this condition or, I don't know, like bedridden at age x or you know like was there that sort of talk going on or was it i mean did, was there a timeline that is typical of your condition so um the the short answer is no and the reason for that is because there's not enough known about this disease to be able to make um you know those kinds of calls it's not like cancer or you know something that has been around for a long time and there came my my purpose which was to you know get people involved and tell people about this condition so they know what it is so it becomes a household name and so that People uh, like everybody has a parent or somebody, some family member or friend who has gone through their entire life claiming that, quote unquote, they have a bad back. And that's just not the case. Like, it's not always just having a bad back. You got to do something about it. So there's there's a specific curvature of uh, the spine when it fuses together in uh, ankylosing spondylitis patients. I mean, there's other ways that the spine can fuse together and could be from other conditions, but it's pretty typical seeing somebody who has it. And I've actually met people in the grocery store uh, who I can see are having troubles and they, and it looks like they've got AS and then I'll give them my name and number and, and, you know, suggest that they go get it checked out. And I've had actually a few of those people uh, contact me back and be like, wow, thank you. I didn't know that I had that. Wow. But, you know, some of those people, like, th th these are people who are 65, 70 years old, and all of the damage has been done. So I'm lucky to have had the early diagnosis and know that there's a leg to stand on. There's things that you can do to mitigate it. 
and you can actually still live a successful life and, you know, somewhat of a pain-free life too. So, I mean, tell me more about you getting into running. Like, had you been running prior to the diagnosis and like, what was running doing for you that you needed to like extend the distance that you were distance time on your feet um, and how that was affecting your life? Yeah. Um, I, well, you know, like I said, it took me a little bit of time to get into the running. I was diagnosed at 19 and I started into endurance sports at 28. Um, I, I think I, I got a DUI when I was like 22 or 23 and I still drove a whole bunch of, uh, uh, I had to drive for work. So I, I ended up getting a few more suspended license tickets and lost my license you know, and ended up uh, needing to bike everywhere um, and use that as my form of transportation. So I kind of stayed in shape, um, but I never really, you know, did a 5K or a 10K or any of that stuff until I I moved to Hawaii or back to Hawaii because I grew up there. But um, yeah, I moved back there and was executive chef of my parents' restaurant. But there was like a like a outrigger canoe club there called Waikoloa Canoe Club. And it was like a long distance, uh, you know, four to six man paddling thing in the ocean. And uh, for, for, you know, so we, we ended up doing that. And there was a guy on my team who uh, was looking for a runner for an Olympic distance relay team. And I was not in shape for it, but I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So I, I was the one who ended up uh, crossing the line in that race. It's a very, very beautiful course called Lava Man Waikoloa. Um, most of the pro triathletes that uh, compete in Hawaii will do that race at the beginning of their season just as like a little tester. Um, and so I, I did that relay thing and I was like, wow, this is awesome. I crossed the finish line, you know, I got to feel that vibe. And from that point I was hooked. Like I, I went out and I bought a bike and I started swimming and I, I got like, you know, all the, the compression shorts and all the things that you needed to do all the stupid things that you spend money on. <laughs> I, you got to look the and, part. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I even, I even shaved my legs at one point. <laughs> Um, yeah. well, we won't go down shaving quite yet. Um, we'll, we'll save that, but, uh, I mean, tell me about the balance of being, so you're working in kitchens and, you know, it, it sounds like these are higher end type foods you're working with to get, you know, become a chef of, for super yachts. I'm guessing a lot of this food is very high end. How are you balancing, uh, all the all the tasting and and just food intake versus trying to get in shape for these events um i you know what like i i don't feel that i could eat enough to um fuel myself for the amount of training that i was doing i was so hooked that i was just out there every day cycling, running, swimming every single day, pretty much in in the beginning stages, because I made a goal that I was going to do a marathon and an Ironman within a year. And I, I met both of those goals. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, so, and that was from, like, off the couch. So it, it just it, it goes to show that really, like, it, it depends on how dedicated you are, and you can really accomplish anything. I couldn't agree more. That's awesome. And so from there, was it how many Ironmans can I do or how many marathons? Or, like, were you thinking faster? Or, I mean, you're 28, you said, I, I believe, uh, when you're starting all this, like, just walk me through what what logic you had um, as as you progressed. Well, I, you know, I, I kind of wanted to be a pro, uh, but th- that faded after a while. I just I, I wore, more wanted to um, create awareness for ankylosing spondylitis, and I actually started an, um, a nonprofit called Helgi Olson Foundation, which I ran for three years. But it just it, it was just a lot of uh, extra work for one person and I didn't have the support that I needed. So I shut it down and now I just, uh, you know, you use the umbrella of other, um, nonprofits to raise awareness. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I stuck with Ironman and triathlon and always had an A race and a B race and it was all, everything leaded up to the A race, just like every other triathlete really. Um, but I ended up moving from Hawaii back to Portland and there was, you know, different kinds of traveling going on. So it it was, uh, challenging to be able to race in these areas. And obviously, you know, an Ironman is expensive. Any race is really expensive, especially with the travel and everything. So I decided that I was going to just go running on the trails more and and i met a guy in portland named scott martin who has my condition um he actually uh fast forward to the virtual backyard ultra that happened right after covid covid and he was uh the guy with the little little doll uh who got like seventh place his name's caveman um he has my condition and and yeah he's he's a badass um, he's, he's a baldy finisher. He's done uh, a loop or two at Barkley. Um, and he definitely inspired me to, um, take my trail running to the next level. That's fascinating. So it sounds like just Portland and in trails in general, being so, uh, easily accessible really helped me along with quote unquote, you know, like it's, it's cheaper, uh, to run trails. I mean, I guess against buying a $10,000 triathlon bike or something to that effect. But, um, so were you signing up for ultras in Portland and this mentor of yours helping kind of steer that? Yeah. So, so I kind of got in touch with him while I was in Hawaii and moving back to Portland and he said, all right, let's go for a run. So he, I guess he got with his network of of, uh, trail runners out there who I'm friends with now. And he said, let's all go for a run. We're going to call it the big, long, hard 50 K. What is it? Exclamation, exclamation, question mark. So it ended up being 60 (laughs) K, but yeah, it's just a funny, um, a funny group of runners and I fit right in, you know, it was, it was such a a great day out there with those folks. And we did seven peaks. Um, I took seven shits. (laughs) So they, they gave me my first trail name, seven shits. (laughs) 
evenly distributed by by each peak, I'm assuming? I yeah, know. pretty much. Well, like, you know, like in, in the saddle of each peak, you know? <laughs> Seven so, shits. Uh... Yeah. Now it's Porky. Because um, I was chasing a porcupine up on Mount St. Helens before dawn with the same group, so they called me Porky. <laughs> I I mean, I think that's maybe progression. I don't know. I need to know the group better. So this was a fat-ass event, or... Or what? The, the first, yeah, the big long hard fifty k was a fat ass, yeah. Very cool. I mean, you don't hear about that many people becoming an ultra runner through, like those kind of non-sanctioned or just kind of like a group run. It, that's very cool. And and so from there, I assume the group, one member here and there, were going out and doing a race, and you were either at least becoming aware of hundred milers and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you, you, you meet a runner that did a race and they're talking about it and it's just, it's when you're out there with people on these group runs, it's like everybody's just kind of in a great mood and they're, they're talking about what they did and what's coming up and, you know, also normal life things. But it was just, uh, there, there was this one gal her name was Sarah, is Sarah. I'm not sure where she's at now, but she was talking about doing the Bigfoot 120 when they had the Bigfoot 120. And I was like, wow, really? That's 120 miles? That sounds crazy. And so, you know, I, I was looking into it, and I ended up signing up for the Bigfoot 100K. Um, and this was after doing, like, I did the uh, Frozen Trails Run Fest, which is a 50K in, uh, outside of Eugene. Um, which Taylor Spike pretty much wins every year. <laughs> He's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then I, I ended up just signing up for Bigfoot and I, I kind of, that was my segue into the destination trail races. Um, did it, uh, the first year I did it was, I believe 2015 and it took me 28 hours and change to do that. It was 110 K actually. Um, but they had it as a point-to-point -point at that time, um, and it was, like, crazy weather, just very, very brutal race. And then the following year, I did it again. The course was a little bit different, but I ended up doing it in 21 hours. Um, so it changed a lot there. Uh, it was a lot hotter that time. But, you know, I, at, at that point, I'm like, all right, if I can do this in this amount of time, I've seen and heard about these 200 mile races, like what do I need to do to get in there? And so, you know, I, I asked Candace if I could get into, um, Moab and, uh, you know, obviously paid the fees and all that stuff and, and signed up and, uh, I ended up, uh, getting out to Moab and, and, uh, doing my first 100 mile, 200 mile and 240 mile in the same race. Wow. What, what year was that? That was the, the uh, inaugural year, 2017. No kidding. And so just to go back to, to where this started, I mean, how is your, your condition changing? How is your spine feeling throughout pushing your distance out to, to that crazy 240 mile type distance? Yeah, I, you know, I feel like it's pretty much black and white that if I'm not running, I'm hurting. 
Um, and so I just need to keep moving. So the more I move, the better it feels. It's really that simple with, with my, my condition, not everybody's going to be the same, you know, like even the different people who have the same condition as me, it really depends on a lot of other factors. Um, but yeah, with, with doing this extra distance, I was worried too, you know, I thought it was going to be really, really hard for me to do that. Um, definitely one of the things that is harder for me, um, you know, just because I have an autoimmune disease is the level of fatigue that I have to go through. Um, cause my body's just firing off all kinds of messages and it's, that's the one thing is the, is the fatigue, but that's also temporary. And I think mentally, as long as you're strong mentally, you can push through anything. So the fatigue doesn't stand a chance against the, the mental fortitude of knowing that you need to get to the next point and get forward and, and get that buckle. So Moab, uh, 2017's the only one I haven't been to in some regard. I mean, what's going through your mind as you, I don't know, you're hitting Bridger Jack, probably an aid station 17 is my guess, um, where you're hitting the hundred mile mark and you start pushing through to unknown territory. Yeah. Um, well, Bridger Jack was actually around 80 miles in that race because the, the race, uh, stopped and started at the Cane Springs, uh, campground, which is, you know, right before the Amasta back aid station is now. Um, so everything was, was pushed 20 miles, uh, the following year, because that's when they changed it to the Moab Valley RV resort. Um, but yeah, uh, it was, it was just crazy. I mean, like this, I was way out of my element. You know, I, I thought that I, I did everything that I could to prepare. And I even had like a, I used my kitchen countertop and taped like duct tape, uh, squares and put different things for each aid station, what I would need when I, you know, when I thought I was going to be there, just like everybody does. Um, but as everybody also knows, it never goes as planned. And so, you know, like I'm in certain areas when I thought that I was going to be there 12 hours prior and now it's dark instead of light and just the the pounding on my feet like I'd never been that far past 68 miles and so everything was new to me it was it was like what am I doing why am I doing this to myself you know but for some reason I just kept going that's that's amazing I mean I it's hard to explain unless you've done a 200 how things can just it's plus or minus 12 hours. Like once you start trying to plan for like mile 190 or whatever it is, like, yeah, you could be like a day, you could be a half a day off easily. Like, like as yeah. it gets further out, it could be plus or minus a day. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean that year, um, and you know, I, I feel like, uh, every 200 mile runner should experience a 200, without any crew um just because it's a different ball game really um and and that race for me and then also uh the following year the bigfoot and tahoe 200s so i've done all three of the races without crew and i've also done them with crew 
Uh, it's just a totally different element. Um, one of the things that I don't like about having crew and pacers and stuff is that if things don't go as planned and and you're you know 12, 12 14 hours behind you might have somebody waiting around and maybe they were only able to to pace for that certain amount of time there's there's a lot of worries that you get when you involve more people whereas if you're just out there by yourself it's like okay all i have to do is get to my drop bag when i get there and and be out of there before the cutoff you know so it's just different i yeah i couldn't agree more it's such a time commitment and it's a time commitment just for the runner, but then you, you start putting on a four or five day, you know, complete effort between travel and everything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, and so I want to, I want to hear more about your training because how many, how many 200 milers have you done at this point? I, I'm counting like eight. Is that right? Uh, sanctioned, uh, I've done... Uh, well, I, I feel like this year's, uh, virtual Tahoe for me is a 200 because I did the, I'm tough 100 twice, like within 110 hours. <laughs> so, so that would be nine, but, but sanctioned actually eight. Um, so yeah. And then I've done a few, uh, self-supported adventures, like over 180, uh, the Vermont long trail was 280 or something like that but yeah so about 10 i guess so you've done 10 and i do want to hear more about that uh that virtual tahoe here shortly i mean what what is your training like if you can summarize for someone that's just thinking about getting into a 200 and maybe they've toyed with a hundred miler and they're they're looking out a year or two like can you summarize what is involved to finish a 200 miler in terms of like weekly miles and like it's hard to describe i've said basically you need to be in shape to on a whim go do a 100 miler like on a whim um and if you're in that kind of shape you should be able to get through whatever 200 miler you sign up for but i mean how how do you describe it well i mean i kind of rely on my experience now more than anything um i did moab last year as well and i did that race off the couch um it's you know it it's just your body kind of has this memory that as long as you are you know eating healthy and being somewhat active uh i think it'll kind of fall into into line but for me being a yacht chef uh, it's it's quite challenging getting the training in. So I cycle a lot. Whenever I have the chance, I'll I'll go and um, bust out 30, 40, 50 miles on the bike and just do it as hard and fast as I can. Um, and then, you know, do a couple of runs a week if I can. But sometimes I can't uh, because it's just, you know, you're out there for three weeks on charter and all you're doing is working. And for me, it's like working with food. So like, yeah, I'm going to get in there and take a slice of cheese. Like, of course, but, um, you know, as far as the training goes, I I think it's a very individual, uh, element and it depends on how that person's body will respond and how much experience they, they have and as well muscle memory. Um, but 
for 200s, there's an entirely different element, which is the mental side of it. And my uh, best training that I've done has been uh, things that are very hard and very dangerous and really scare the shit out of you because that those things are what's going to set you apart. If you do overnight stuff in bear country you, and you make it through that, then, you know, you can just go do a dirt nap in a bed of scorpions. I mean, you're living such a, an interesting, fascinating life. I mean, talk about the juxtaposition of serving, you know, those well off enough to uh, in, engage in life on a super yacht. <laughs> this is like just the the 1% of the 1%. And then, yep, uh, yep. And then you're taking dirt naps in Moab. <laughs> and, and surviving bear country it's like I, that's just fascinating it's not quite like a zach miller situation on these yachts but like three weeks of basically uh being on the ocean that's that's crazy that's crazy <laughs> and um i'm enjoying this helgi man we should have talked sooner um yeah yeah exciting so, for sure so how do you get any miles in at all? Do they have a treadmill on these super yachts? Uh, t- typically, they will have a treadmill. I mean, obviously, like yachts can go anywhere from you know, 60 feet to 500 feet. You know, um, I work mostly like 40 meter to 60 meter area. So, um yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on what's there, but there'll be some kind of stuff to work out with, and uh, you just really have to clean up. I mean, if I go up on the treadmill and run and get it all sweaty, I got to spend another fifteen minutes cleaning it. Um, so they're not but, really so for try- staff, quote unquote. Like- yeah, it, I mean, it's just that every the the thing about yachting is um, every time somebody goes in the bathroom and uses the bathroom the stewardesses will go in there and clean the bathroom every single time. Uh, you know, the bed gets made when they leave the room. It's just such a different environment that everything has to look perfect at all times. So it just makes it a little bit challenging. Um, but the cool thing about it is, is like we get to be in some places that we being the crew get to be in some places that um, we probably wouldn't otherwise have had the opportunity to be. And that gives me the option of running in those areas and cycling in those areas. And I've done that. It's such an awesome, amazing experience to be able to do that. I'd much rather be outside and uh, training like that, or even going for a swim in the aquamarine, like really, really clear water. Um, So yeah, we have the option of doing the working out on the, on the boat, but I kind of uh, just do it in my cabin just to, you know, do some calisthenics. And then uh, when I have the opportunity to get off the boat and do something out with mother nature, that's what I rather prefer. So one more question on this front. I've, I've met maybe a few billionaires. I've been fortunate to have dinner next to one at one point and they're people they, you know, they have, <laughs> they're like any one of us. They just, you know, if anything, they have a lot of additional stress, but from your vantage point, is there one or two things that 
those with like extreme wealth do in terms of fitness um, and cuisine that most of us are just not aware of, or, you know, we don't live day to day with, with those, um, with just unlimited money. So we don't really know, like, are they working out every day? A lot of them, are they eating super clean or like, is there any other insights? I don't want to get you in trouble either with your work. Yeah, no. Well, actually, I, I'm going to be starting a brand new program tomorrow here in Florida. So I don't really know much about that yet, but <laughs> I'll find out. Um, but I mean, yes and no. Um, I think that th- having that sort of wealth and freedom with your schedule, um, usually, the, you know, an ultra high net worth individual will have uh, people in places to operate every facet of their business. And they won't even be doing much of that anymore, except for like signing checks and maybe not even that. So they have a lot of free time on their hands and that free time becomes very scheduled. And uh, especially when it's like a couple situation, you know, they've got to go travel here, uh, have this, uh, meeting with friends and a lot of people will have different uh, residences in different parts of the world. And they, they like to, you know, go to those residences. So it just becomes a really busy schedule. And many of these uh, folks will have a private chef uh, with them and then also have a a chef on the yacht. Uh, So they, if they wanted to do the Atkins diet or something like that, they could go ahead and, and request that that's the food that, uh, they get served. And it's really easy for them to accomplish that because they're not essentially doing any of the work. They're paying for it to happen. Um, and as far as training goes, um, yes, usually there is some sort of a regimen that if, if they want to do it. But I would say that um, the the ease of having that person cook that certain diet for you or maybe a personal trainer that could train you a certain way, I feel like the ease of it makes it uh, easier for that individual to not do it. I think that it for people who don't have that affordability, it is easier to um, stay on task, and uh, that's because it's harder. Because you know the 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 harder that something is, the better it tastes in the end. You know that's kind of the the mentality I feel like. That's really works. interesting, and so. You go from limited amounts of exercise to then jumping into these big, giant, long-distance races. I mean, you've done the Triple Crown before. I mean, tell me just briefly about this year's goal, because you you didn't just do the Triple Crown this year. I got to hear more about what you're thinking going into this. Okay, so back in 2018, when I was finishing the Triple Crown for the first time, the year that we did it, um, I was coming down Porcupine Rim, and I was really reminiscing about the whole 650 miles and how hard it was to get where I was standing right now, and that I was actually going to finish. I was smelling the barn. But then I was I kind of had this emptiness inside of me because I didn't know what I was going to do after this as far as my fitness stuff went and, you know, uh, my races and whatnot. So I started thinking, I wonder if this can be done, but 
connecting the races in between. And so, you know, I spent the next uh, little while seeing if it was possible. And once I realized that it was possible, I spent a lot of time planning and uh, getting, you know, the fundraising side of it together and all that stuff. And it's it's been three years in the making. It was supposed to happen 2020, but, um, you know, COVID. Everything got canceled. And, yeah, and it just, due to the amount of support that I w- would need and did need from, uh, you know, the the other runners and things like that, when it was a time of really like it was tough for people to support their families during that time. And I just couldn't, it wasn't socially responsible for me to reach out for, you know, people to help at at that time. So it worked out. It gave me an extra year to plan. And uh, yeah, I mean, the original uh, idea was that I would run in between the races and have the bike just in case I fell behind. Um, But there were just so many things that happened along the way. Um, you know, I, I had to get my truck all built out. I did it all myself uh, as an overlanding vehicle and as my, my crew vehicle. So that was one thing that was a big piece of the puzzle. And then obviously getting all the people to um, to sign up and help out uh, and to basically donate their time, some of them for 61 days, some of them for a month, you know, some of them for a week. And... Uh, So, yeah, I was going to do the running between the races, but um, I ended up on my last training run on the way to Bigfoot. I stopped in Big Sky, which uh, is a very great, beautiful place with awesome trails dear to my heart. Um, And I was going down this one trail called Lava Lake, and I was like 30 miles into an 80-mile run. It was going to be my final run. I clipped a rock and went, did a flying Superman, my forearm, uh, my left forearm, like basically braced my fall against the flat boulder that would have been my head. Um, and I got like a compression wound on that arm. So I ended up, uh, having to bail out at the bottom of that, um, the the bottom of that descent, which is where I had, I was going to do a resupply. But instead, my buddy uh, pulled me out, um, and I went to the hospital, got the stitches, and didn't realize that it wasn't really the arm that would be the problem. It was my foot. So, uh, yeah, I had broken my foot uh, during that uh, thing there, and I ended up uh, thinking it was going to be fine for, for Bigfoot. It never really got better, so I just went with the race. I just started the race. And eventually I kicked enough rocks that it went kind of numb and uh, just motored on. I mean, I, I knew I could finish the race if I just kept going because I'd done it before, but it was excruciating pain in the beginning. And then eventually I just used it as like a tool to uh, pin one pain against another. And it worked out really, really well. That was this year. That was this year. Yeah, that was wow. the, that was the beginning yeah and i mean so the heat never affected you as much as you're running a 200 with like a broken foot basically yeah i mean well it it wasn't the conditions at bigfoot were 
not as bad as they have been in the past. I mean, the, the, the day one was definitely exposed. It was, you know, all in the blast zone up there. Um, but yeah, like six miles into the race, I just, I remember I, I bent a trekking pole and kicked a rock so hard that it was like, Oh, oh it just hurt so bad. I'm like, Oh, and I said, oh, okay, so this is how this is going to be. Huh? I was just talking to myself out there. And, uh, I just was like, all right, I can do this. Not a big deal. I'm going to use this against the other stuff that's going to happen later on. And it just worked out. You know, if, if you kind of put an idea in your head early on in the race or some kind of mantra and just follow that, then it, it should work out. I'm Ethan Wayne, director of the John Wayne Cancer Foundation. And I'm Molly, the race director for the John Wayne Grit Series. My father, John Wayne, asked my family and I to use his name to help find a cure for cancer. So we started the Grit Series. It's a series of 5Ks, 10Ks, and half marathons that take place in the most beautiful and rugged landscapes across the Southwest, including places where John Wayne shot some of his most famous movies. That's right. And all the race proceeds go towards cancer research and prevention programs. We're asking you to join us and bring your courage, strength, and grit to the fight against cancer. For more information on a race near you, visit us at johnwayne.org. That's johnwayne.org. Stay dusty. Big thank you to Exoskin. So they have a new t-shirt. It's 100% cotton, two colors, black and neon green with white logo on the front. And a hashtag show us your skin and at Exoskin USA on the back. They are $26.50 each without a discount available, but still just really appreciate their support. So check out the show links um, for that link to Exoskin. Also, big thank you to Tannery Outdoors. If you're interested, use uh, the promo code ULTRA10 for 10% off. But this is just a great company. You know, it's designed for runners by runners. Uh, the founder is an ultra runner. And it's an all-natural mineral-based product, which in this era of, of sunscreen recalls and everything taking place there, it's just comforting knowing um, this is, this is a, a good, honest company. And um, it, it cares about the ultra-running community. It cares about the trails and in the national parks and state parks, I think 1% of their sales goes back into the park systems. And they they definitely support, you know, some really great ultra runners and ultra running podcasts. That's, I mean, I want to talk three hours just on your Bigfoot 200, but unfortunately, um, I I don't think we have the time. We, we yeah. will eventually if we're on the trails. Um, so... What's what's like your major takeaway from Bigfoot? Other than you literally have a big foot, it's like broken. I mean, and you're somehow doing a 200 miler. Like, how did you get through this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I had a I had a crew there. Um, I had a great crew. They were super supportive. Um, I think the closest that I was to the cutoff was about one hour at one point. Uh, maybe even 30 minutes actually at, um, at click attack. But I, I just relied on my experience. I, I knew that I would get through it um, as long as I kept going. And 
It was a very hard-fought battle. I'm not sure how this happens with every 200 that I run, but every single one gets harder. Um, and Bigfoot was no slouch. Uh, the end of the race, from Klickitat all the way down into um, Owens Creek, was just blowdown central. At least 500 blowdowns. Uh, and these are big, big Douglas fir, big trees. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was a rainstorm. There was sleet. It was freezing cold. Um, so that was. It just seems like the back of the pack during um, both Bigfoot and Moab this year got really hit hard with yeah. with the conditions. Yeah. And I was in both of those uh, situations. So, so yeah. I mean, I, but you know what? It just it just made me um, have more confidence in my ability. And, um, I, I still have the dangling carrot of the DNF in front of me as far as, uh, not having had one yet. I know it'll come eventually, but it really helps me drive forward to, to try to maintain that. Um, so I, that's one of the things that I was doing at Bigfoot, uh, to, to keep going forward. Yeah. Just keep running further races. You know, these, these 200s aren't long enough for you, Elgie, so um, <laughs> in terms of DNFs. And so you, how's your foot doing? You're on the track, you finish Bigfoot. I he, walk me through getting to your next race. Okay. So, um, I was a little bit behind leaving Bigfoot. And so I, uh, I got on the, I went to a hotel with my crew and then we took a nap or well, I was asleep and then came back to the high school to start out on the bike. I needed to make up the time. I was originally going to go on the PCT and run it, but I needed to make up the time to get to the Columbia because the Columbia River, because I was going to start uh, the Oregon section of the PCT as an FKT attempt uh, a few days later. And I had all the people set up for certain days and the schedule was very, very tight to get to Tahoe. At this point, Tahoe was still on. So I get to the Columbia go into Portland and take a couple zero days, get ready for this FKT attempt, which was going to start at midnight. And, uh, I believe a couple days later. And then as we were getting ready to go out to the start, I was like, I need to go get this thing looked at. So that is when I went to the urgent care, got the, um, X-ray and the confirmed, uh, the avulsion fracture of the fifth phalanx, which essentially is the, the pinky toe, um, it ripped off the bone from the side. My tendons got shredded during Bigfoot and pulled that all away. So my second toe is cocked, uh, still cocked. Um, and yeah, but so then I had to make the decision of like, do I pull out of this thing that I've worked so hard on, or is there a way that I can keep moving forward? And so, you know, I talked to my crew and I said, why don't we, just bike to Tahoe. And uh, that became the move. Uh, I got a pair of like stiff bottom road shoes, uh, as well as uh, some road pedals. And my theory was that if I could kind of immobilize the movement of the foot, that it would help or at least, you know, be able to move me forward. And it worked. Um, we went out to the Pacific Coast Highway uh, and just continued on down south on the Oregon coast there and a few days later uh 
there were the wildfires in the Caldor, the Caldor fires down by Tahoe were getting pretty bad and the air quality was horrible. So the race got canceled when I was 60 miles from the border on this highway. And so I had to then make another call to uh, figure out what I was going to do, how I was going to do this virtual race, where I was going to do it, and how the hell I was going to get to Moab. And so, yeah, I just uh, ended up, we decided that we would, we looked at the air quality in the region and it looked like Idaho had pretty good air quality at the time. So we set our sights on Boise and we were going to uh, just do 200 miles in the area to make up the 33,000 feet of gain that we needed. Um, and I, I got in touch with Dax Hawk, who is, uh, who lives in Boise. And I asked him, you know, if he thought it was possible and he reached out to a couple of his buddies who looked at the routes and they said, yeah, but then he said, well, why don't you just get in touch with the race director of I'm tough and see if you can get in. And so I was like, wow, that's a great idea. And so we did that and asked him, uh, his name's Jer, Jer and, uh, and Brandy. And so we asked him if we could do a double loop of his race. And he said, yeah, sure. But you have to do the first loop under the 36 hour cutoff like everybody else. And so, <laughs> yeah. Pressure's on, man. <laughs> Yeah, so, so we went, you know, I cycled up through Bend, spent a zero day there, and then got a massage, and, and then did another five days to McCall, Idaho, and, um, you know, got there four days ahead of the race, got ready for it, got checked in, had had some pacers come out uh, that joined me for the race, and it, it was an amazing experience. Uh, I've never pushed that hard. Um, to get that cut off, I finished the the first loop in 35 hours and uh, 30 minutes. Oof. So I was the second <laughs> second to last finisher. And uh, then then I we asked the race director if we could just post up right there at the finish line. So we set my truck up and and slept there. I slept for 10 hours. It was an 18 hour break, and then I got back on the trail and did the entire loop in the reverse direction. Is that And I finished that in 109 hours and 40 minutes, which was both loops in that time, which was 20 minutes under the cutoff that uh, uh, Phil and Candace had put forward. Wow. Is that a course that uh, rotates? So like every other year it goes a different direction or... Does it always go the same direction? You just wanted to change it up? Uh, well, I mean, I didn't want to do the same thing twice. I wanted it to be different each time. So I just cool. did it. It, it. You know, if if you were to unroll that whole thing, it would all be one big loop. Very so, cool. And I, I heard you got a, uh, you the race director thought very highly of you. Is that safe to say that here you got the second year? Uh, finisher buckle as well. Yeah, yeah, it was really it great. Um, he, Jer, man, like I was out there uh, on my final night, and um, I kind of thought that he might end up showing up. I mean, he did the he race directed the entire race, the first uh, loop, and and I saw him all throughout this race. So he must have been everywhere. He didn't sleep a wink. And, um, 
he ended up coming out at like one o'clock in the morning with uh, a pack with three different uh, thermoses that had like hot coffee and hot tea and hot That's soup awesome. with rice in it and a fig bar. And he like gave me this whole buffet. And, you know, this was like seven miles from my next aid station location where my truck was where I was going to sleep. And he ended up uh, basically getting me to run uh, when I didn't think I could anymore and uh, made it to the truck and took a nap. He went home to his newborn baby and wife and got some sleep. And then I continued on once I woke up because uh, I was you know, going to finish the following day. And he ended up coming out again to, to run the last seven miles with me all downhill. We were doing eight minute miles with him and my buddy Rick. And I, you know, if I didn't do those uh, sections with him, it would have been really tough to make it under the cutoff. Wow. That, that is amazing. I love it. That, that is a true race director. I mean, they are on the ground. I mean, as, as long as they can be and man supporting you like that that's amazing and yeah and the whole community too like he was informing the the whole i'm tough community as far as like where i was and what was going on and everybody was really supportive of the whole endeavor that's awesome and so you're probably feeling a lot of pain i mean is your foot healed at this point or like did the bike riding help in between the races or, or like, was it aggravated yeah. the entire time? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a certain level of aggravation that it pretty much always had. And it still has my, my foot is, is still, uh, broken ish. I mean, I can, when I walk on hardwood floors or anything like that, it really hurts. So I'm going to have a looked at here, uh, next week and see, I might need to get surgery. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the the foot, I knew I could deal with the foot. You know, the pain of the foot was, it was there, but it wasn't going to stop me. And it, so I just kept going. Um, and yeah, I mean, it seemed to work out fine. Get, get me to Moab. Let's hear about okay. you getting there. All right. So uh, Moab 240 was about 1,000 to 1,100 miles away. From I'm tough, so I ended up going through the sawtooths, um, and it was freezing rain, really, really bad conditions, like 20 degrees, and it was just it was a brutal uh, section for me. Uh, we we were camping outside and doing all this stuff, so so we got to feel the elements. I mean, luckily for most of the entire adventure, there wasn't much bad weather, but this was a really bad section. And uh, ended up uh, going, Lucia and Dion had this um, place in Salt Lake that they weren't using for the, the rest of the month. So we ended up making that kind of our target. And I wanted to do something extra. So we went to the, I, I cycled to the Hiawintas and did like 60 miles on, on the Hiawintas for like a final training for Moab. And then continued on, uh, got to Moab. Um, through where we go through um, Duchenne's and down the 191 and ended up getting to Moab the Monday before the race. And yeah, I mean, it was, the conditions were kind of, it was some rain going on. We didn't know what was going to happen. 
Um, but we were getting prepared for essentially a shit storm out there. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good description. And the Leonards didn't tell me uh, you had stayed anywhere uh, near them. They, they told me they had coffee with you. That's really cool. So you get there, you got less than four days, right? Because it's a Friday morning start. I mean, yep. what's preparation efforts like and how are you feeling on the start line? Um, preparation was, uh, I, I went out in course marked two days before the race. I did the section from <laughs> um, Amasa back to base camp and a little bit after that. So I, I got to see some of the course. One of my pacers wasn't going to be able to see that and he wanted to see it. So we did it together. And yeah, I mean, basically like I was just eating as much as I could, um, just relaxing. And my girlfriend flew out from, uh, Florida to support. So we, we got to hang out and, um, we went to Woody's, had some beers, but yeah, when start, start line started, um, I was feeling really good. Uh, I actually started this race on time. Usually I start a little bit late, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I wanted to get out in front. And so that's what I did. I, like, I really wanted to put the hammer down in this race as much as I could and leave everything that I had out there. Um, so yeah, I, I think I was in like 15th place I, at a back. I, I saw you at a back. That's the Genesis of a lot of this conversation right now. Um, I was shocked. I was like, holy crap, did Helgi get like really fast or like what is going on? Like <laughs> I had heard <laughs> I had heard about some of the stories uh you know that you had shared via coffee with uh Dion and Lucia, but wow. And so what's going through your head? Like are you cuz I've I've been in a sim- similar spot in 19 where I was like, uh like should I have gone out a little less uh hot there i mean were you thinking yeah were you thinking you felt good or were you questioning it in the back of your head because it's so uncommon for you to be running up front yeah i mean and and i i i kind of like being toward the back and i i move a little bit quicker through the sections uh and spend more time at the aid station so i get to talk to more people but um this, yeah, I was feeling really good. And, you know, like the, the temperature was, was awesome. There was a little bit of rain. Um, but I just, I wanted to, I wanted to continue running as much as I could. And so I did, but I probably shouldn't have, I I was definitely having those thoughts of like, wow, I'm going out a little bit fast here. Uh, and, but then I was like, oh, there's Brady. And he ended up finishing 11th. I'm like, I'm going to go run, try to catch him, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I just, (laughs) I did that. And I don't know whether it was me running hard the first day or whether it was me, um, doing some course marking and the Hiawinta trail, which is all like really like hard stone, hard packed stone and rock and stuff. I think that it might have been uh, an overuse situation, but my anterior tibialis is what started to really, really uh, hurt me just before Bridger Jack and and for the rest of the race. So I I ran all the way to uh, Indian Creek, and then from then forward, I was having some really tough times. I, I couldn't run very much, and especially downhill. 
Okay, so I'm not a medical professional. <laughs> where generally where where is it hurting on your body? Is it your like the front okay. of your shin? Yeah, exactly. Like okay. right down there in that curve of uh, on the top of your foot. Got it. Um, it it's interesting because I had talked to Alicia and Lush on the previous few episodes ago, and uh, one of them had Alicia had that very similar problem, and I don't know if it was was it muddy in certain sections, like after a masa well, back. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was all that stuff, uh, you know, once you get down into Jackson's Hole, all the way to Indian Creek, and then, um, you know, and and we're talking about uh, 50 miles right there, and then another between Indian Creek and the island, there's there's quite a bit of mud, Um, so that was, I think that was part of it, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that the rain and the mud made it certain areas a little bit more hard packed and yeah. it made it so that the, the impact of those landings on every footstep were, oh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and talking to the medical director, uh, Brian Wilford, he mentioned that there were many, many others who had the same problem. And I actually know a few of those people who did have the same problem. Just picking up on that trend, just two's not a trend, but, yeah, that's interesting that you you pick that information up, and I think that is a perfect segue, Helgi. You just opened the door for me. So, for every one of Candace's races, at least two hundreds that I know of, there's a medical kind of summary recommendations. Uh, you know, if if small children are listening, maybe cover your ear, uh, cover their ears and your own ears. Um, there's a section that says don't shave your balls. Um, and there's there's like medical reasons why not to do that. I've heard a rumor that that you might have been part of the inspiration behind this little paragraph in those medical uh, recommendations <laughs> that Candace sends out. Is is that true or is that false? Uh, I mean, I I don't know if it's true or not, but okay. um, I just it it wasn't in the uh, runner's manual before <laughs> I did Moab 2017. Um, so yeah, we we were talking about that earlier. How it was my my first 200, and one of the things that I did before the race was I shaved my areas down there because I thought it would be you know, better. <laughs> and it, it wasn't. I mean, I don't want to go in the details, but trust Helgi's experience. I've heard, I've heard the story. He can share as much as he wants, but I've heard of the pain level getting to the extent of biting down on a stick to run sections and, uh, yeah. to be just, Open, honest here, guys. When you start tapering for a race, you you not only taper like physically, mentally, but hair on your body is tapered when the taper starts, not like day before the race. Uh, (laughs) Or chafing can be just outrageous. So um, we're talking to potentially the inspiration for that little blurb and 200 mile uh destination trail pre-race recommendations i just thought that was hilarious so i had to throw that in there yeah 
<laughs> I think uh, as far I mean, I've learned a lot as far as chafing goes. It's never really happened. Any, I mean, obviously you get a certain amount of chafe in every race, um, whether it be from your pack on your back or your your thighs rubbing together or whatever. But I think that the number one way to mitigate that is just to keep everything clean. Um, yeah. you know, ha- having some dude wipes around or something, some kind of wipe to be able to, uh, get the salt off of your skin and the dirt off of your skin is it will work wonders. There's also, um, you know, I use a cream called Calmoceptine. It's like a diaper rash cream. It's like a chalky pink thing. But if you, if you heat it up, it'll it, basically by rubbing it in your fingers, um, it, it helps prevent, um, lasting chafe and it, I don't know, it seemed to work for me. Yeah. Um, but go, going and just lathering up with a whole bunch of squirrels, nut butter and not cleaning the area is a bad move. So just, you know, if Couldn't there's any more. advice I could give on that, you got, you got to keep it clean. Especially when you're going through temperature changes. Like for me, at least it's like the real hot stuff in Moab. If you're not doing baby wipe showers baths whatever you call them and then lubing up like into the night oh man i can't it could probably end your race for all i know um i've heard that saran wrap does not work well um (laughs) but that's just a rumor i'm trying to think other things i'm gonna try to change this topic here get me back to moab 240 this year 2021 in getting like halfway and kind of where you're at like where your your leg starts bothering you you went out hot you were feeling good which i mean you're gonna have down cycles of energy at 200 milers so a lot of times it's like i mean should i just get in 60 miles if i'm feeling good because i know i'm gonna hit a wall at some point i might as well be 100k in as opposed to you know 30 miles in or whatever it might be yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and and that's the mentality that I had going into it. Um, I knew that I was in the best shape of my life, and I knew that I could, you know, gain some time essentially. So that's what I did, and I'm happy that I did because I incurred an injury that I've never had before, and it was an injury that made it so that I could not physically move quickly. And so what ended up happening at that point was, okay, well, I've got all this time on the cutoff. I was like 15 hours ahead of the cutoff at Shea. And uh, that's that's mile 120 for the listeners. Um, but basically, I, I just started chipping away at my bank of time that I had on the cutoff. And I, in previous years, this is my fourth time doing Moab 240, but in in previous years, um, I would start smelling the barn after I uh, left Uwa Lake, um, or, I mean, it's been three different things. It's been Uwa Lake, it's been Geyser Pass this year with Forest Creek. (laughs) So 200 um, miles, roughly. Yeah, at 200, because basically you're going, you're doing a, you're going downhill at that point. And so it's safe to say you're smelling the barn. But this year I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Not until I get to Porcupine. And so I just kept trucking as much as I could. Um, I was lucky to have crew and pacers and also meet some amazing uh, other athletes who I now call friends 
who are out there uh, struggling with me. And, and we basically formed some alliances out there and helped each other get through it. Um, it, it was, it was a brutal, brutal last night of the race. Um, there was freezing rain, sleet, uh, probably four inches of snow. And it was, it was like sideways going down that thing. Um, I, I lucked out going downhill because the snow was there and it was actually cushioning my footsteps. I wasn't sure how I was going to get down the sand flats road. Uh, but I basically just glided down. Um, and there was this, there was this weird situation on that road where, uh, there were these guys, there was this van and then there were these guys that had these waste packs that had like bar and chain oil and, you know, their lunch and this and that. And this was in the middle of this snowstorm. And then there was some other guy that was like off in the bushes, you know, those junipers on the sand flats area. Everything's covered in snow, by the way. But this guy's out there cutting trees with a chainsaw. And I asked the other guys who were at the van, I said, what are you guys doing? And he said, we're working. And I'm like, okay. I, I thought that I was hallucinating because... I just didn't think this was possible, but these guys were actually out there in this snowstorm cutting these trees. Like, I guess they were, uh, thinning out the trees so that, uh, they didn't have more fires like they did in the Pat Creek fire, Yeah, but it was just weird happening, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I, what, what's, what's it like to be hallucinating? I, I assume you were hallucinating at some point during this race. I mean, where, where was it hitting you and, I, I got to hear about Porcupine Rim. Was it snowing on Porcupine Rim, or did it not get that low? Well, it, it did snow on Porcupine Rim, but it was kind of you know melted away by the time I got there, and then it was just uh, some just really cold rain. Um, but I, I was, you know, like I said, I've done this race. This is my fourth time, and pretty much every time I get hallucinations. Um, and I always get them in the sand flats area because those junipers are, they, they just like kind of move around with the wind and they look like faces with laser beam eyes that are going to cut your heads off. There's, there's, they're just some crazy trees. Like one year, uh, there was a big dumpster in the middle of these trees and it looked like the garbage bags were overflowing onto the desert floor. And I was just really upset because I was like mad that people were littering. And obviously the dumpster didn't exist, <laughs> but, but I had some good ones, um, on the section between wind whistle and road 46. Uh, I was, it, it's like a sandy monotonous road that just kind of goes on for it's like a half mad, marathon. It's like Mad Max out there pretty much. I mean, it's totally, uh, you're getting close to, yeah, super flat. You're getting closer to the LaSalle's they're getting bigger. But usually I've done that in the dark, and this time I did it in the dark, and I was, like, all of a sudden I just saw these uh, six-inch white PVC pipes that were just, like, strewn about uh, haphazardly all over the road. It looked like a construction site. I don't know where they came from, but but I saw, like, these white pipes, and then they were gone. And then I had this other thing where... Um, like in the corner, the bottom corner of my uh, right side of my vision, there was this 
Game Boy, like a Nintendo Game Boy that was playing. Uh, the buttons were being pressed, but there was no <laughs> hand pressing them. And, and it was like a like an Asteroids game going on with this thing, like some plane shooting a bunch of blocks. It was ugh, it you, was weird. So you had like picture in picture through your eyes. Yeah, it was in the bottom. Exactly. It, it was like, like picture in picture on your screen. TV, like the little screen yeah. and the big screen. <laughs> ah, that's hilarious, man. Um, yeah. And so... Tell me about this finish line at Moab 240, unless you have one one last hallucination story that, you know, I got to hear about. I, I think that was it uh, for this year. Um, but I've heard some good ones, and I, I just think it's amazing that, you know, you people can access the that side of their brain just by having a little bit of sleep deprivation. It's such a crazy concept. Um, it's probably not healthy. Yeah, I mean, I've I've wanted, if I had more time, I wanted to study that, obviously. So, and one last hallucination story, just because you've done 10 uh, official and unofficial 200-mile efforts. I mean, you have audio hallucinations, correct? Uh, oh, you mean like when I when I hear things? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes like, <laughs> I'll, I'll get... Um, like classical music will be playing and I'll ask my pacer, Hey, do you hear that? And they, and they don't, they're like, what are you talking about? There's nothing Courtney, there. Courtney's told me in the LaSalle's there's concerts that take place. Um, it, it normally, yeah. it's, hopefully it was a good concert. Um, so you have visual hallucinations. Mine yeah. Mine are usually visual. Like last year I had one in that same area on that same road from wind whistle. And it was like, I, I was with my pacer, and he was walking in front of me. Usually I walk in the front, but uh, he was walking in front of me. And I just saw this scaffolding to my left that it was just like one scaffolding with a couple of different pieces of plywood on it. And on top of the scaffolding was like a cheese and meat platter. And I asked my pacer if he could get hand me the cheese and meat platter that was on the scaffolding. And he was like, what are you talking about? There's no cheese and meat platter on this thing. There's no, there's no scaffolding. It's not there. So <laughs> I've been there. It's so weird. Time right? for a nap, you know? Totally. That, that's the solution is once you start seeing stuff that's not there or hearing stuff, you take a nap, take a trail nap, do anything you can nap-wise. So have you had a smell hallucination? Because... I have not, and okay. I know you guys were talking about that. Lucia had smelled like pines, and I was like, I, I think I think I smell pines, but I'm not sure. And we went down that avenue, and I just never had thought of it other than, like, I honestly, I think it's like a serious medical condition if you start smelling weird stuff. Like, it, it could be a sign of something horrible, but um, in terms of hallucinating it, I just wasn't sure if that part of your brain does that yeah i mean i haven't i haven't had any of those uh, uh smell ones but i hope that one day i can <laughs> <laughs> hopefully it's a good smell if it, if it was a bad smell that'd be that'd be horrible um yeah so what was it like once you hit the bike path I and mean, this is the fourth time you've hit it are you able to have any leg turnover kind of like what's going through your head you've 
you've set out for the trans triple crown kind of self-propelling yourself through all of these events and getting to each one like what's going through your head when you you finally get to the bike path into the heart of moab yeah i mean i i was uh just just for numbers sake it was 2850 miles including the um uh races and uh, the races are about 650. So the rest of it was cycling. Um, and yeah, I mean, normally in these races in the Moab 240, especially I'm able to find legs from porcupine rim all the way to the finish. And at this time it was not the case. Uh, I, I couldn't run any of that. I tried, uh, as soon as we left Porcupine Rim, there's a like dirt road section, which is really mellow. And, and uh, I, I actually walked backwards for two miles on that. And then uh, once I hit the bike path, I started walking backwards again because it was just easier. And so it was we were physically it was just, turned around. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just basically just kept going and I wasn't, I was probably doing 18 minute miles at best. And so when you, when you go through the finish line, do you have that same sense of, of what went through your, your mind when you finished the triple where it's like, what do I do from here? Or like, what's going through your mind when you get to the finish line? Yeah, I didn't have that this time. Uh, until after the race. And now I have an amazing idea, which I can't exactly share yet, but, um, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I was just gonna, I was just happy to be done because it was such an exhausting, all encompassing adventure. Um, you know, cost me a lot of money, but that's not really the issue. It, it was more just the, the time that it took and, dedication but i i felt really accomplished and uh proud of myself for doing something that has so much um essentially probability to fail uh but i was able to make it through this thing by adapting to what was in front of me and uh believing in myself and uh, you know it was kind of a victory lap for me getting to that uh finish line uh, you know, 61 days of just going and I'm not a fast guy, you know, I'm a back of the packer. Um, and it just goes to show that anything is possible. I I really love for another athlete who potentially is fast to go for this trans triple crown, uh, with running or even cycling like I did. Um, but I, I think that, I was able to show people that this is a possible thing to do. And I hope that it's something that others uh, try to attempt in the future. So my last question for you, Helgi, and appreciate all your time here. Have to have you uh, on again. What did you learn about yourself doing the trans triple crown? Was there one takeaway after all of those miles, all those hours of movement um, that you found out about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like uh, I didn't discover anything new about myself. 
as far as being able to accomplish uh, such a huge task, I just I feel like I just fine tuned what was already there, and I I made it more more believable to myself that I could actually do these things, um, and it just makes me want to figure out other opportunities and ways to do bigger things, but it it's not about uh, me. It, it's about the impact that we have as um, essentially a trail running society uh, to make it so that we can continue to do the things that we love and enjoy the trails that we love, but taking a step back and looking at it as a bigger picture as in like what effects we have on the trails and the environments and what can we do to uh, make those trails always be there for everybody to enjoy and get the inspiration that you get from it. So it's time for trail runners to really do their part and uh, as that as environmental stewards and uh, take that to the next level. We're not going to sit in the back burner anymore. I love it. Thank you again for, for joining me. And, and where can we follow you on social media? So I'm on uh, Instagram as Helgi Olafson. That's H-E-L-G-I-O-L-A-F-S-O-N. Um, and pretty much you can just uh, follow me anywhere from there. Um, I know that my fundraiser is still... Uh, active. So if anybody would like to donate to the Spondylitis Association of America, it's a 501c3, so it's uh, tax exempt and supports people with ankylosing spondylitis. The journey was 2,850 miles. So the goal is $10 per mile, which is 28,550. Um, and currently the fundraiser is just over 20,000 and We'll be open uh, for a couple more months uh, until we reach the goal. Awesome. Helgi, thanks so much. And uh, have to shout out Adam Scully Power. I'll put a link in the show notes or on the website to an article he wrote about Helgi as well. I know those two are buddies. And definitely check out uh, Helgi's cause there. So thank you again for all your time today. Of course, Rob. It was great uh, chatting and looking forward to chatting more in the future. That was episode 194. Big thank you to Helgi for taking so much of his time. Really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Big thank you to the show sponsors, Exoskin, the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, their Grit Series, and Tannery Outdoors. Big shout out to you Patreon supporters. Really always enjoy your support behind the scenes, Facebook, group chats and everything. So episode 200 is coming up. We're only six episodes away and we're going to have a new format. So I'll be dropping another shorter episode here soon. Don't forget to enjoy your training.